And welcome back to episode three of Battleground, the Falklands, with me, Patrick Bishop. And me, Saul David. So last time we told the story of the sailing of the task force, which was a hugely dramatic event. For a moment, Britain was plunged back into the Victorian era, a sort of time warp with uh, flag-waving crowds cheering our boys on as they set off to punish some impertinent foreigners. It all looked very warlike, I seem to remember, but no one in their right mind actually wanted a war and there were high hopes that diplomacy might avert the need for an invasion. There had been a long and largely fruitless history of trying to settle the whole question of who the islands belonged to. For 17 years, the Foreign Office and the Argentinian government had been going back and forth over the same old ground, trying to solve the problem. At its heart was a very knotty conundrum. Britain, or rather the Foreign Office, was very open to the idea of actually giving the islands over to the Argentinians under some sort of leaseback arrangement whereby they got sovereignty, but we carried on ruling the place uh, for some indeterminate time. Um, However, they were severely hampered in this aim by the principle laid down over and over again by various British foreign secretaries that nothing was going to happen unless the Falklanders approved, which despite great efforts of persuasion, they were showing no sign of doing. So, of course, the Argentinian invasion had brought the matter to a head in spectacular fashion. It presented a huge challenge to the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, who'd been in power since May 1979, but had still not stamped her authority on her government. Today, we're going to talk about the diplomatic offensive Britain launched in parallel to the military initiative and the political atmosphere in London as the crisis progressed. We're then going on to describe the first actual military operation of the war, the recapture of South Georgia. It was, as we will discover, a very perilous moment in the story. It came close to a disaster that might have stopped the whole enterprise in its tracks. But first, we're going to have a look at the political and diplomatic track. We're very fortunate to have with us Simon Jenkins, who at the time was political editor of The Economist and had terrific access to the politicians and civil servants shaping events. Together with Max Hastings, he wrote the first serious book about the war, which very much stands the test of time today. He went on to become editor of The Times and is now one of Britain's foremost political voices. Simon, welcome and thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Can I start off by asking you about Mrs Thatcher's position in the spring of 1982 and what immediate challenges the Falklands crisis presented to her? I think it's, it's awfully difficult in telling the story of any war uh, to do so with retrospect. Uh, you cannot imagine uh, when you've seen the victory parades what it was like at the beginning uh, because we just know what happened next. Uh, at the beginning, Margaret Thatcher was in a state, I think, of complete shock. No one expected the invasion. Uh, No one was ready for it. Uh, It came out of the blue. She obviously thought to herself, this is the end. She was deeply unpopular. Uh, She was facing great difficulties with her own party, um, all sorts of wings of the party. Uh, And now she had this catastrophe on her hands. Uh, And she was simply in a state of shock. How much is she led by her own personal instincts and beliefs? And how much is she actually listening to the advice of cabinet colleagues, military uh, personnel and civil servants? I think uh, it, it was very much herself. I really do. Uh, you have to remember that the, 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 the war itself was the result of a lot of internecine fighting in Whitehall. The Foreign Office was desperate to get rid of the Falklands, uh, in reasonable order, but desperate to get rid of it. The Ministry of Defence was the prime cause of the war. They ended endurance. 
they'd cut back on, they'd refused to put the um, uh, the uh, airport initially in, into the into the islands, and therefore, in, in many ways, encouraged Buenos Aires to what it did. Very few people were for the islanders uh, at this stage in Whitehall. Uh, all you had was was a tiny group of people on the Tory backbenches who were fiercely for them, um, and fighting tooth and nail uh, against the, the the mass ranks of Whitehall. Margaret Thatcher w- was was in a very weak position. Any backbench opposition to her, she feared. So she was inclined to go along with the backbenches. But at that particular moment in time, she really didn't know what to do. And she was, as I said before, she was clinging to straws. And the straws she clung to was the task force. Uh, The assumption was something would turn up. Uh, The Argentinians would leave or the United Nations would get involved or the Americans would help. Something would happen. But the whole time the task force was sailing down to Ascension Island, the assumption was they wouldn't go any further. Okay, and you mentioned the Americans. Uh, This is obviously crucially important, really, isn't it? The reaction of the Americans. What sort of support could Thatcher expect to get from the Americans? And on the other hand, what would be the attitude of Cold War opponents and the Third World? I don't think she thought much about the latter. Uh, As far as the Americans were concerned, at this stage, I mean, she was sort of just throwing her hands up in despair. I've got ships at sea. For goodness sake, everybody rally around. Uh, the Americans, I mean, Galtieri had been to Washington. He had support, tacit support, uh, not in invading the Falklands, but in his claim to sovereignty over the Falklands from Tom Enders uh, and people in Washington. Um, he genuinely thought the Americans would be at least neutral if he did invade. And he had good reason to think for thinking that. Gene Kirkpatrick at the UN um, was also sort of on his side. Everybody was keen to get on with Latin America. The foreign officers were desperate to get on with Latin America, which is why they wanted to get the Falklands off their plate. I don't think at this early stage, Mrs. Thatcher had any idea that it would come to asking the Americans for missiles and that sort of thing. But she assumed she had good relations with, 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 with Reagan and so on. She assumed that all would be well. Um, but I don't, think, I don't think the question of alliance was, was in her mind at this stage. It was a bit um, odd uh, to people who just assumed that America would rally round when you've got this uh, strange sort of um, ideological crossover, Gene per- Kirkpatrick, who'd started out life as a as a far leftist and is now, uh, after exposure to Roddy Reagan's charm, seems to have become a massive sort of anti-communist Cold War warrior and, by extension, anti-British. I don't know if that had anything to do with her Irish roots, but there we are. But against, you know, slightly lukewarm American reaction, we do get this great result in the in the UN. Can you talk us through uh, the role of Tony Parsons, etc., in getting the passing of uh, Security Council Resolution 502? Parsons was a character. He was a great success. Um, Margaret Thatcher adored him in the end. Um, and I think it was very important. I mean, the British have always been very deferential to the UN. It happened again over Iraq. Um, they wanted UN support. Uh, and I think that's what, well, that's what they ended up with. I think the crucial thing about 502 is that it, it uh, basically ordered the Argentinians off the islands, so they had to withdraw completely militarily and didn't say anything about um, the British retaking them. So therefore, it was kind of opening the door to a military invasion should the Argentinians not comply with the terms of 502. So I, I think um, that, that I mean, there was a lot of ground to cover before we actually got to war, but it did actually uh, give us this, uh, this sort of... Uh, international legal cover, which was tremendously important. If you invade a foreign country unprovoked, you're on weak ground, whatever the justification for it might be. 
um, uh, it, it, it was a great help to us. You're quite right. I think the other thing about it is that that um, that the UN had for 16 years been trying to negotiate a settlement for the Falklands. Uh, British ministers have been in New York almost every year, uh, getting nowhere in these negotiations. As soon as the war was over, everyone's forgotten. The UN ordered us back into the negotiations, which we didn't do. So uh, the, the British relationship with the UN was ambivalent, but always nervous. Rhodesia was going on at the time. Uh, the British were very worried um, to, to get Rhodesia in the, in the right order uh, to go independent. Uh, and the last thing it wanted was trouble in the South Atlantic. Simon, while the task force is heading down to Ascension Islands uh, and on to the Falkland Islands, there is, of course, this ongoing diplomatic effort, uh, the shuttle diplomacy by Al Haig coming over to London, then going over to Buenos Aires. Uh, and Thatcher's government going along with it to the extent that uh, they had to, I suppose, they had to see where it might lead, but pretty determined uh, to stick to this principle of self-determination uh, by the islanders, that is. And yet, on the other hand, it seems to me, Haig was quite happy with an arrangement that would effectively uh, produce a neutral uh, interim administration after the Argentine withdrawal from the islands, which was something Thatcher simply wasn't prepared to put up with. So uh, the question really is, was there any hope that that diplomacy could ever succeed? I I don't think there really was. Um, You're quite right. All sorts of different um, things were happening the whole way the task force was going south. Um, you had the Al Haig, you had the Belondi Terry Peruvian uh, proposals. Um, all of these, in the final ones, I mean, after the landings, um, when 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 Reagan came to London and sort of pleaded with Thatcher to to do a deal. Um, the whole time, and the further it went on, the more Mrs. Thatcher became utterly involved in the task force. And she regarded all this sort of stuff as purely for show. Uh, Francis Pym was pleading for her. The cabinet on the whole thought, rather like the UN, we, we must go along with peace, even as we prepare for war. Uh, and, um, I mean, Al Haig was a nightmare. I mean, every time he came to London, it was, it was chaos and no one's going to talk to him. And he, um, and he was a very oddball character. He, he, he took advice famously from, from Kissinger, who'd recently done the, the, um, Arab, the Israel-Egypt deal. How do, I, how do I do it? And Kissinger said, Arab-Egypt is easy compared to Britain-Argentina. Um, <laughs> they're, they're used to doing deals. These people are never used to doing deals um, and told him it would never work. Um, so I think I think it was show. It was genuinely show. They were going through the form, going through the actions to try and appear to be you know, keen on peace. But um, once well, and once she was south of the Ascension Islands, it was all or nothing. And I think from that point onwards, it, it was only going to be total victory. And, and this wretched business, you've got a lot of it from, from Parkinson, I remember, saying once people have started dying, you owe it to them to continue fighting. Well, I don't believe in that, but that's what he said. And that was certainly what the, the generality of people thought, I think. We've all seen the pictures. We all remember the pictures of the cheering crowds as the as the force leaves. But uh, once casualties were being taken, particularly once some of the ships were being sunk, did, does political support for the war shore up? I think it does. I think most people, it's difficult to remember because we're all aware of the victory. I think at the time there was genuine nervousness. Um, of course, it was very easy for the government to control the flow of news. I mean, it had, had absolute control of the flow of news, both uh, through its own spokesman and through uh, having the journalists uh, embedded in in their own ships and so on. So, um, so I don't think anyone quite took aboard um, the, the the disaster of, of of the Atlantic conveyor sinking, which was a real that was a single thing that must might have lost us the war. Um, uh, they never quite took aboard what Goose Cream was really about or, or, or what the 
um, the, the Galhead operation was really about. All of this was really told after the after the occasion. But certainly, uh, something like Coventry and Sheffield. I mean, that was that was. I remember that being devastating. You, you could look, these are real ships being sunk, um, and uh, and and I think everybody was really holding their breath at that stage. They couldn't quite believe we'd lose, but we couldn't quite see how we were going to win. Do you think, Simon, um, the initial operation on South Georgia, which we're we're going to go on to discuss, uh, and comes, you know, reasonably close to disaster itself? Do you think that was a key moment because it was the first uh, proper military engagement of the war, at least in an aggressive sense, for, uh, as far as the Brits were concerned? And if that had gone wrong, and it almost does, uh, and Thatcher's pretty shaken because she hears the news that two helicopters have gone down and, you know, there could be a lot of casualties. I mean, might that have made a difference, do you think? Um, I think to the war, it was neither here nor there. Uh, to public opinion, it was very important. Of course, we weren't told that two helicopters had gone down. We just told her we got, we, we got it back. Uh, and, and that enabled her to this, to, to this you know, just rejoice moment, um, which was very, imp- that was very important. It sort of felt as, as if that was inevitably going to be the case. So, so the Falklands are going to be as easy as that, we hope. Um, I think it was significant in those, in those sort of presentational terms, yes. Well, that was fascinating, real insight there. I was particularly struck by the way that Simon, who really did uh, know the corridors of power very well at that stage, amazing contacts, etc., his judgment on uh, just how lonely a place it was for Thatcher at that time. Uh, there she was, you know, pretty much untried at a great crisis. You had the ongoing crisis, but not anything like this that she could possibly have prepared for, and how precarious her position was. There were a couple of things that, that stood out for me. First of all, his portrait of Thatcher as someone really separate from her cabinet, but a person who who fitted very neatly in with the military. And this, is, of course, is crucial. We know many instances in history where yeah, politicians like Hitler interfere. They have a very bad relationship with their soldiers. They don't really trust them. Uh, but Thatcher seemed to. She seemed to understand them almost instinctively without any kind of you know personal knowledge herself of the military. But the other really striking thing, I think, is that this diplomacy that, of course, many people in the country hoped would prevent a war uh, was never likely to work. I mean, Simon makes it pretty clear, I think, that there was a lot of talk, but unless uh, the Argentinians were prepared to withdraw and concede the principle that the islanders would determine their future, there was going to be a shooting war. So now we come on to the first military clash of the campaign, when British forces meet the enemy on the frozen glaciers and mountains of South Georgia, and very dramatic it was too. Join us after the break. Welcome back to part two. We've had a bit of diplomacy. Now we're moving on to the shooting war as it occurred in South Georgia. Now, the island of South Georgia is quite a long way from the Falklands, nearly 900 miles to the east, in fact. The decision to recapture it was, as we will discover, both a political and a military one. It showed the Argentinians we meant business. It would provide a secure anchorage for the task force ships out of range of Argentine aircraft. And perhaps most importantly, it would provide the government at home with a quick and easy victory to satisfy public opinion. We're now going to talk to Bob Headland, who, as a member of the British Antarctic Survey team on the island, was actually present when the Argentinians first arrived. Both that uh, scrap merchant uh, ruse that they tried in the middle of March and later on, of course, when they actually take the island by force on the 3rd of April. 
I was on South Georgia with the British Antarctic Survey, employed as a biologist, arrived there in uh, 1977, did a couple of winters, so got to know the island well. Okay, it's interesting. I was I was looking at your book, and I noticed that there were indications that the Argentinians were, how can I put it, interested in South Georgia a little bit earlier than a lot of people might imagine. And we're, we're really going back to Christmas uh, 1981 now, uh, Bob. So can you tell me a little bit about the first sightings of Argentinian ships around that time? Well, the Argentine interests in uh, South Georgia, apart from the um geographical ones and involvement with the whaling industry which goes back to 1904 but more recently than when the old whaling stations were closed there was a vast amount of once useful stuff time went on then it became scrap metal and a fellow who dealt in that in argentina constantino davidoff thought he could make a profit from it i think it started as a straightforward commercial operation But at that time, with the military government, it was a uh, a useful excuse, if you follow. And it was not a good thing to disagree with the government of Argentina in the late 70s and early 80s. So Davidoff was inquiring about transport. He wanted to see what he had an option to buy. He was even inquiring with private yachts, with the British Antarctic Survey, with charters. But the Argentine Navy decided it could help. That was a bit of a poison chalice. Okay, and and do you remember the first uh, uh, sightings of the of the Argentinian ships coming into uh, South Georgia? The first we knew that Bahia Buen Successor was arriving was a bit more Spanish on the uh, VHF signals. Um, now that was first heard. I, I understand the Spanish, no problem. So something was happening. We had a field party in the vicinity which reported the ship there. And that was the 18th of March. Once this was uh, established, myself and a colleague uh, took a launch across our bay, where you could climb a reasonable ridge and get a view of the area of Leith Harbour and Stromness Bay. So there, with fairly powerful binoculars, we were seeing what was going on from a uh, reasonable distance. And uh, I was listening to the VHF and reporting back. So we had a good report of the beginning of what was alleged to be, and to some extent was, the salvage operation. So what could you actually see that day? I mean, what, what, wait, because if it had just been the commercial operation, it might not have been such a problem. But first of all, they hadn't asked any permission to land, and you had to go through the due process to do that. And secondly, and I think most importantly, they'd, they'd raised the flag, had they not? Uh, quite a few things happened. Uh, for a start, the ship, which had uh, regularly visited the Falklands, she should have known the procedure, that... Uh, couldn't get away with things then, but she was an Argentine naval vessel. Uh, the flag raising that uh, the field party had detected was an irregularity, was protected species on the island. In the case of the reindeer, they were getting some of those ready for the barbecue. But the basic operation was landing equipment and personnel to begin a salvage uh, job. The uh, views of the ship we had to some extent reassuring, there were no satellite domes or dishes or the sort of communications that in 1982 would indicate naval logistics of a substantial nature. But there were all the equipment for transmitting uh, information, and uh, she was in regular contact with BA. Okay, and this information was passed, of course, on to the Falkland Islands. And, and what kind of information did you get back from them as to what was likely to happen next? We weren't really well equipped for espionage on a detailed way, so we did it in another way. That is using low-power VHF and um, 
doing uh, from the pass where I was observing a, a short walk behind another mountain, we could transmit to the launch we had. They had another frequency which was transmitting to base, and their reports were transmitted to the governor in Stanley. Originally, that was uh, in uh, in plain, but then uh, there were different methods of encryption used. But it was not a quick process. Okay, and and what information did you get back from Stanley as to what might happen next? What we could see of unloading and operations that wasn't the best view because it was on one side of the ship and we were on the other. But uh, the radio was the best traffic we could get. But number of persons who could be seen and basics of what from about uh, a dozen kilometres away, one can see the beginnings of the unloading and preparing for salvage. The flagpole and the raising of the flag, two sources for that, one our own field party. And secondly, a French yacht had gone over. Uh, There's a long story about that, too. And uh, they described uh, somewhat of a military parade for the occasion. The flagpole wasn't actually a flagpole. It was a reasonable tower. It held electrical cables around the old whaling station, but it was reasonably high and prominent. And we got some good photographs. Okay, and and the instructions came back from Stanley, presumably initiated from London, that uh, you would send a pretty strong message to the uh, Argentinians as to what they needed to do next, including the lowering of the flag and an attempt to go through the normal procedure, which is, of course, to not just land at Leith, but to go to the correct port of entry uh, and, and get their papers in order. Did they follow those instructions? The instructions came from Rex Hunt in Stanley, whereas he was informing the Foreign Office, he was acting rather quickly himself. And they're roughly what you outlined. The question of protected species to report to the port of entry to lower the flag, and a brief series of straightforward instructions, none of which they obeyed. Is it, There is some indication that they, they lowered the flag for a brief time. Is, it, is there any truth in that? Yes, we've got photographs of it coming down. There was a situation of the small military contingent were rather keen on the flag, and the scrap workers couldn't give a damn. Now, of course, you then have the the changing of the guard, so to speak, as far as the Argentinian ships are concerned. One leaves and another arrives, and uh, I suppose far more sinister in terms of the arrival of the second ship. It's got a it's got an Argentine military force on it. Yes, Bahia Buen Successo left after several days, and. Uh, we could see activity on shore. Uh, the report was at least 10 men were seen. Later on, by the time that had come back through the BBC, only 10 men were seen. Well, we couldn't see the lot. It's a rather large whaling station. Uh, but Bahia Paraiso was a major Argentine uh, Navy ship uh, equipped with weapons. Very well-built ship. She'd been recently constructed in Finland as an icebreaker for their Antarctic program. So she was the next on the scene. Okay, and also at the same time, and I think having arrived just before the second Argentine ship, uh, the Endurance had had arrived at at Gritviken, originally with instructions to turf the Argentinians out, and then presumably with second thoughts in London, uh, given that uh, talks were going on with Argentina, that actually just to hold fire and and wait off Gritviken. Is is, is that correct? Yes. After Bahia Buen Successo had gone, HMS Endurance arrived. Uh, At that time, also, we had a couple of Russian visitors, to use the uh, phrase, I think, from one of the Monty Python things, bristling with aerials. Uh, They were doing a fair amount of observation. Then in came Bahia Paraiso. 
Captain Cesar Trombeta and Captain Nick Barker, the two masters, knew each other. They'd informally met, but the circumstances were very different. Okay, so at this stage, Barker has has instructions not to do anything. I mean, certainly to take no military action. So we then get a bit of a standoff, don't we, until the actual invasion of the Falkland Islands on the on the second of. Uh, April, uh, which is the point at which the Argentinian military force on South Georgia begins to take aggressive action itself. So can you describe where you were and what happened next uh, in that situation, Bob? The original plan that we had from Stanley was that uh, the base commander has the post of magistrate. There was to be a police operation assisted by the Navy. Uh, That was quite practicable at the time. But then Whitehall became involved and that was countermanded. Uh, They knew the position of Bayeparaiso and the uh, power she had was far more than anything we could deploy at that time. Uh, Then uh, Whitehall was issuing more to Stanley than Stanley was doing directly. That was a time when the threat to the Falklands became more apparent and endurance started heading in that direction. Uh, she could make, I think, about 12 knots on full whack. She's built for the ice, not for speed, but was unable to get there in time. By then, Bahia Paraiso was established in Leith Harbour. Guareco, a um, quite effective little corvette, was in the vicinity. That was the time when it was realised that Endurance would not be able to assist with Stanley. There was far too much against her, so she was returning to South Georgia. She arrived just as things were finishing and good observations were made. But with the Guarico and Baia Paraiso, it wasn't appropriate to, or endurance to interfere. That was uh, on the 3rd of April, the Battle of Gripfigan, as I like to call it. <laughs> so from your perspective, can you, can you give us an indication of what happened that day? Uh, there was a lot of things happening, signals going backwards and forwards on the 2nd. Then uh, Rex Hunt had surrendered and Stanley was taken by the Argentines. That's at a time when uh, one did what had to be done with code books and prepare for problems the next day. But that uh, day, 2nd of April, we had a, a semi-blizzard gusting at times to about 80 knots, so there was no way they were going to launch helicopters or anything else. 3rd of April, we'd heard the news... It's a state of emergency on the night of the 1st of April. The news from Falklands, as Patrick Watt was relaying news as to what was happening in Stanley, and our communications, not that there were a lot of them from elsewhere. But it was a brilliant day on the 3rd. Bahia Paraiso came into the harbour. Uh, the situation at King Edward Point with Keith Mills and the Royal Marines putting up as much defence as they could the circumstances of Gorico placing herself in a dangerous position, and uh, Carl Gustav, anti-tank rockets being useful on a ship that comes far too close to you. And the eventual remedy that the Argentines had was uh, bobbing 100 mil shells on from a distance, and there was no remedy for those. Keith Mills surrendered the Royal Marines before too much damage was done to the base. Uh, about uh, two hours later, I did the same thing for civilians. And you, you and, the, and most of the other civilians were where during the, the, uh, the, the heart of the battle, or at least the... Gridvican itself was the name for the whole bay and the main part of the base. King Edward Point was the scientific station, and there was the abandoned whaling station, about uh, a bit less than a kilometre away. And the various buildings there, the most intact was the old whalers' church, which seemed an appropriate place, so that's where the civilians were. Two reasons, of course, it's a shelter. And secondly, 
the RMs didn't want civvies when they were going to have a fight. They'd only get in the way. Yeah, I understand that. And so when you were finally taken uh, into custody, uh, shall we say, because I, I don't think really, really you can be described as prisoners, prisoners of war, but you are obviously, <laughs> you occupy some kind of middle ground. I think so. The term war wasn't used. It's a little bit like we're not supposed to say the, the Russians aren't saying they're having a war somewhere more recent. Ah, so, so would you say you were prisoners of war? There's no question about that. Uh, no question about that. Interestingly, civilians and uh, military were together ourselves on the Royal Marine. Marines first aboard by Iparaiso and second in a rather hastily constructed prison camp in Puerto Bagrano. Now, before you were taken off the island, your, your first um, ha- uh, meeting with the Argentines, I mean, how, how, how did they treat you? I mean, what, what was your impression of them? The fellow in charge of the station remained on King Edward Point, but uh, a fellow of the name Astiz with a rather dubious reputation, who I didn't have a clue who he was at the time, which is probably rather good, accompanied by Keith Mills and quite a lot of uh, Argentine uh, armed forces, the Buso Tactical, fairly efficient. Some of the others didn't look so. And uh, I uh, approached them from the uh, church, informed of the military result, and uh, a civilian surrender was handled. After that, the British Antarctic Survey personnel, one by one, were called out and paraded. Some of them were better at parading than others. And uh, we went back to the base sitting around the empty flagpole. There's various stories about that. Would you like to elaborate at all on that? My Spanish is uh, fairly respectable. Uh, Astiz was basically, uh, he he spoke good English. He'd learnt it in South Africa, very much from the accent, and some of the military situations he'd learnt there were not inappropriate for uh, his reputation. I answered in Spanish because I rather thought the chaps pointing uh, quite a lot of weapons roughly at my heart should hear that I was giving in. Uh, we carried on in a bit of a mixture of languages. But uh, round the flagpole was interesting. The Argentines had uh, suffered a bit and there was a fair amount of military comradeship and some of the Royal Marines were also there. The little things like a fellow lighting up a cigarette and failing to realise he was sitting on a drum of petrol that was leaking, and um, complications of this nature. The requests to gather some property, uh, civilian or military, were given. We were given civilians were given about twenty minutes to uh, go to the cabins in the main part of the base and try to pack a few things. Some of us myself included, had um, listened to the radio and seen what was happening and had done packing some days before. But uh, then most persons were taken aboard by a Paraiso directly. There's a couple of other things that needed to be done uh, that the Argentines requested were done before uh, I was one of the last to be aboard. We did have things like radioactive chemicals and one or two other things on base that... uh, it was appropriate to let the Argentines know some of the, the things they had just come to acquire for several reasons. General safety was one. And the fact that I was rather thinking that they might not be there all that long, so we didn't want too much of a mess to clear up. It's interesting you say that, because um, talk, talking to people in the task force who were heading down around about this time, obviously a few days later, were very much of the opinion that they felt oh, it's probably not going to come to a shooting war. It might, they might, you know, they'll, presumably there'll be a diplomatic settlement. But 
it did seem at that stage that it was a bit far-fetched that the, uh, in a military sense, that the, the British forces would be able to retake the islands, including South Georgia. Were you, were you reasonably confident that would take place or at least some settlement would come about that would allow you to return? There was much news going round and things we heard and we were incommunicado for a lot of it. But the idea that the Argentines would be long-term at King Edward Point seemed unlikely, especially they, they were, the way they were kitted and things like that to start a war just at the beginning of an Antarctic winter isn't all that good. And knowing the instability and problems of the government, then uh, a long-term occupation seemed unlikely. The aspect of Falklands seemed to me to be a much stronger one for any action than South Georgia. But after all, South Georgia was the back door to the Falkland Islands. Yes, and it's interesting, isn't it, that the the claim, uh, as far as the Argentinians are concerned, uh, for South Georgia is really only uh, only directly connected to the Falkland Islands. It's almost a historical uh, accident, really. Is that not the case? I mean, in the sense that if South Georgia had never become the Falkland Islands depend one of the Falkland Islands dependencies, it's unlikely that that the Argentinians would have made a claim for it. Uh, that is a difficult one, and if you specialise in it, you'll get a good job in the Ministerio de Santos Extranjeras in Buenos Aires. But with some of the early claims where you can construct a claim for the Falklands, for instance, the Treaty of Tordesillas, when that placed the Spanish and Portuguese limits, if you take that one as a basis, as the Arge do for the Falklands, you draw your line, you suddenly find that South Georgia is Portuguese, which makes it Brazilian, and the Treaty of London would have handed that to Britain. So you can get all sorts of convolutions with ancient international law. The fact that uh, UK has had a uh, magistrate on it, administered it, and made formal claims from 1908, and the Argentine Antarctic claims in 1943, and the fact that with Antarctica, including South Georgia and South Sandwich Islands, Britain had put a case before the International Court of Justice in 1954 to uh, try the uh, case between Britain and Argentina and for the Antarctic Peninsula, Chile, and was bound in advance to accept the decision of the court, and Argentina wouldn't contest it does indicate that their claim might not be all that sound. Yes. Okay, so the garrison and the and the civilians on the island of South Georgia have now been, uh, as you say, taken into custody. They're now prisoners of war, and you're heading for Argentina, I'm, I, I imagine, to begin with. What, what happens next? How long does it take you to get back to the UK? From uh, Griffican, uh, we were accommodated in uh, cabins beneath the helicopter deck of Bahia Paraiso, sailed to Leith Harbour, Sailed on a far southerly course to Rio Grande off Tierra del Fuego, where the wounded were landed, then coasted between Falklands and uh, Argentina when there was a lot of helicopter operations. Uh, Our ship was being used for landing aircraft on their way to the Falklands, which seems to be the Geneva Convention requiring prisoners to be out of the war zone seems to be a little different. Then on to uh, Puerto Belgrano. Uh, where we ended up in a uh, hastily arranged, uh, interesting prison camp. It was part of the area with the conscript swimming pool and all the changing rooms and areas behind that. There we were being told we were getting out manana. We had quite a lot of manana's. Eventually a manana came true and there were night flights, a couple of um, uh, Fokker F-27s. Uh, towards uh, going north, we could see quite a bit of Argentina and eventually recognise the Monte Video 
the old Spanish fortress floodlit in, in Montevideo. So there we were released, the aircraft surrounded by Uruguayan police, and when we walked through them, their weapons were still pointing at the Argentine aircraft. Onto coaches, into the centre of Monte, and in the very early hours of the morning, in the Hotel Casino Carrasco, to be very well looked after in strange circumstances. The Uruguayans were making a comment in this that uh, you can rely on them to be strictly neutral, and prisoners of uh, both sides pass through Uruguay. They have no great alliance with Argentina. From there, a couple of days, flew to Ascension and Bryce Norton. Was there any welcome for you at Bryce Norton? Uh, some, some of the, Rex Hunt, for example, was welcomed by various senior members of the British cabinet. But what about you and the other uh, prisoners from South Georgia? Stuart Prignall, OCRMs, was there. Foreign Office was represented. And if I'd have known better, I'd have come off that aircraft wearing dark glasses because of the flash bulbs. And were you were you able to talk to the press, or did you you know did you talk to the press, or was was were there instructions really you know can you can you you know hold fire for the moment on on anything to do with what happened on South Georgia? We were into customs and immigration and uh, looked after fairly well from then. Uh, transport uh, arranged. Many of us weren't very keen on talking to anybody. By my count, it was about thirty hours since I'd been reasonably sleeping. Uh, The uh, press then got names and details of all of the Antarctic survey personnel, and there was a little bit of what you could call, well, if you're being critical, it would be press hounding. Uh, The RMs had a lot of other things to do, but we had many inquiries as to people, MOD and others, wanting details about the structure of buildings in uh, various parts of South Georgia. And with a combination of the British Antarctic Survey and Scott Polar Research Institute, we could provide a lot of useful detail quickly. So that was Bob Headland, a member of the British Antarctic Survey, who was actually on the island of South Georgia when it was captured. Uh, and as we've just heard, dramatic stuff, really. The, the so-called battle for Gritfagen, in which he took the civilians to the church and the Royal Marines under Keith Mills battled it out. I particularly love the detail about the use of the Carl Gustav uh, anti uh, tank grenades that were actually used against one of those two Argentinian ships and, and clearly did a, a substantial amount of damage. Um, there's also some interesting stuff about, about him in captivity and his relationship with the, with the Argentinians. But we now move on because, of course, South Georgia is in Argentine hands, as indeed is the rest of the Falkland Islands. Uh, and the decision is taken to recapture the island first. Which all starts off quite rapidly it's only 10 days after the invasion that uh, british ships now kind of around the ascension island really the halfway point between britain and falkland start assembling for an operation to retake uh, south georgia at, at its heart there are a couple of uh, british warships the plymouth and the antrim uh, they've got a resupply ship with them and they'll be joined by HMS Endurance. Now, on board are a mixed force of Marines and uh, special boat service troops, and they're going to be joined, uh, unbeknownst to them, by D Squadron of the SAS, who suddenly turn up. They've more or less gone on their own initiative, as one person puts it in uh, in a command position. Uh, They gate-crashed the operation. So they uh, then head south... Uh, with the intention of 
first of all, well, getting into position and then launching the operation. The diplomacy is going on the whole time, so the, the trigger actually hasn't been pulled on the operation yet. But they steam south at a rate of knots, and by around the 2021st of, uh, of April, they're there. The conditions are pretty... They're a long way south. Condition, uh, conditions are, are, are pretty appalling. Uh, very high winds. Uh, the actual islands themselves are very much Antarctic sort of landscape of, of mountains and glaciers, etc. So they got their work cut out. Yeah, and I've got an absolutely fascinating document here, Patrick, written by an SBS operator who uh, has written an account of this early stage of the campaign. He was uh, in this operation. It was called Operation Paraquat, interestingly enough, the recapture of South Georgia. And he writes, During the period 14-21st April on board Antrim, brainstorming sessions were carried out utilising all the commanders and special forces teams' knowledge on what were the best options to retake South Georgia. The biggest factor that was underestimated by all concerned was the climactic and sea conditions, especially on the glaciers. The catabatic winds on or around the glaciers range from 70 to 100 miles per hour, combined with a cold and wind chill. Any team deployment at that time of year would turn quickly into a survival exercise. D Squadron, SAS, although advised, did not heed the advice of Guy Sheridan, the, the mountain leader, or the wealth of experience from the skipper of HMS Endurance and other suitably qualified individuals on their options for survival, inserting by sea or landing on the glaciers. And, and Patrick, it's a dramatic story, isn't it? What happens on the Fortuna Glacier? Do you want to tell us what happens next? Yeah, well, before that, I just want to say something about the kind of uh, military uh, ethos at large here. This is something that civilians don't really think about very much, but there's a huge amount of rivalry between units, between regiments, and often, even in uh, quite extreme circumstances, they seem to spend a lot of time squabbling uh, in turf wars uh, rather than getting on with fighting the enemy. We see a bit of that here because uh, the initial plan is in that should be in the hands of Guy Sheridan, the Marine commander. This is someone who knows a hell of a lot about Arctic conditions. He's a great mountaineer. He's been on endless exercises in Norway, as, as have all the Marines. Uh, how to cope in these conditions. They've got the right kit, they've got the right attitude, they've got all the know-how. However, uh, the plan is sort of hijacked by the SAS commander, one Cedric Delves, who decides that um, they're going to go ashore and land on this glacier, the Fortuna Glacier, uh, in order to carry out an initial recce of uh, the Argentinian positions on that part of the island. Now, Sheridan... Uh, is bitterly opposed to this, but he's overruled. And off the SAS go uh, in these Wessex helicopters, which then have to fly in in practically whiteout conditions, dump them on the, on the glacier, and then return. Now, after about 12 hours ashore, uh, these plaintive messages start coming through from the SAS saying, uh, it's hell out here, <laughs> please, can you get us off? Uh, not really what one associates with the SAS or with their propaganda, anyway. Um, so Wessexes have to return to try and uh, pick them up, which they successfully, uh, initially it seems they do, but then flying off, uh, two of them crash uh, and they're, they're lost forever. They're lost to the, to the task force, which is um, a huge gap in, in the logistics because there's very little helicopter lift. Anyway, ultimately a third Wessex goes back, manages to pick up, no one's hurt, thank God, uh, pick up the survivors and the crews of the of the crashed Wessexes and uh, massively overloaded 
uh, take off. It requires a huge gust of 80 mile an hour wind to actually get them airborne and they stagger back to the ships uh, and, a, and a huge potential disaster is averted. Yeah, I mean, and, and interestingly enough, Thatcher in her memoirs notes that she receives information that those first two helicopters have gone down. And this is a real key moment in the campaign because uh, they're expecting disaster. Uh, they're anticipating not only the loss of those helicopters, but also all the men that were on board them. So when they hear shortly after that actually a third helicopter has managed to get everybody off and the operation to recover South Georgia is still on, they breathe a sigh of relief. And this could have been a real hinge moment in the campaign. Yeah, I mean, it's not the SAS's finest hour, and there are more blunders lying ahead. We'll just tell you the next one <laughs> briefly, which is when after this they decided to go ashore by uh, rigid radar by these kind of, you know, um, land, landing craft with outdoor motors attached. Two or three of the boats, the engines fail, and uh, they sort of find themselves drifting out to sea. One of them gets ashore. Uh, but another is, is sort of just carried off into next stop, South Australia. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't quite get there, as, as, as we will relate in a moment, but, but they're definitely missing for a few days. And, and of course, there's concern that everyone on board that inflatable, three, three operators, are, are going to lose their lives. But the, the, the turning point effectively is a bit of luck, really, because on the uh, morning of the 25th, uh, they pick up radar signals that a submarine is in the vicinity, uh, an Argentine submarine, an Argentine submarine. Uh, it turns out to be the Santa Fe. A- and they launch attack helicopters to take it out. And that attack is very successful. It doesn't sink it, but it forces it back into the harbour of Gritvigan, uh, where it's effectively scuttled by its crew. And it should also be mentioned that Santa Fe has literally dropped off more men for the Argentine garrison. So there are now more people uh, on shore to defend the island. But it's also in the wake of the success against Santa Fe that the decision is taken that the Royal Navy vessels can now move closer in and not worry about any counter-strike bombard the shore while at the same time uh, they're going to insert a, a team of soldiers in fact it's a mixture of soldiers from the SBS the SAS but most importantly led by that the hero frankly of the uh, guy Sheridan to try and uh, force the Gripigan uh, Argentine garrison to surrender. Yeah so it's, it's really the, the kind of demonstration of naval gunfire I think that changes the psychological equation and the Argentinians among them, one Arturo Astiz, who is actually already notorious to the world as being a torturer, a murderer, uh, a, a commander of the death squads waging the dirty war. He's actually in a command position there. And he's, um, he's told his, his troops that this is a, a test of Argentinian honour. They're going to fight to the last drop of blood. When it comes to it, though, he comes out with his hands up. The white flag uh, is run up, literally. And uh, he's off signing a, 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 a total surrender document. So great game set match, really, to the Brits there, but not without a lot of, uh, of potential moments for disaster. Fortunately, everyone came home alive, including the, the uh, errant SAS uh, boat team. They were, uh, as you say, they were an inflatable, Gemini, not a, not a rigid ranger, as I said earlier. 
so this is the moment when, uh, for a bit of political triumphalism. Yeah, I mean, back in London, uh, we've recaptured South Georgia and we haven't lost a single man. And it's a, it's a tremendous political pick-me-up for Thatcher. Uh, she says famously to a, a team of reporters who are asking her, uh, rejoice, rejoice, when she announces, or she and John Knott announced the recapture of South Georgia. Uh, but interestingly, there's a tiny bit of hubris, I think, from the uh, commander of the task force, the naval commander, that is Sandy Woodward, who gives a very rare interview after hearing the news to a reporter on his flagship HMS Hermes. Uh, And he says, South Georgia was the appetizer. Now this is the heavy punch coming up behind. My battle group is properly formed and ready to strike. This is the run-up to the big match, which, in my view, should be a walkover. Well, there were words that I think he may have come to regret slightly, because on the horizon are looming uh, two huge events which completely change the atmospherics of the war. Triumphalism gives way to trepidation. We'll hear all about those in the next episode. Please join us. Goodbye. (laughs) 